Hello. This is required viewing. Urban Dictionary says spook, an idea with no true backing in reality as popularized by the philosopher Max Stirner. Also a CIA agent mm-hmm. used in 1960s America. Mm-hmm. Government agent. Here's another one. The best part is they, dis- they misspelled describe. <laughs> uh, a word to describe a black person, normally used by older folks in their mid seventies. Yeah, that was like that really... was from on written on October first, thirty first, two thousand five. Yeah, it's by like an, Durka Durka Durka. It's an old term for Durka. black people. But this. So why is it okay to still say spooky? Well, what? Okay, I have a real question for you. I feel like my question was a real question. No, your question was a real one. I guess I'm not saying, do we have no answer, right? I guess not. It's still a term, but we should put it out there that it's not a chill term. But it's, I haven't heard it in a while. Yeah, me neither. Being a person of color myself, I feel like I would have heard that one by now. Well, we got pretty fucking spooky today. Well, what about... If you had a bar, like a haunted bar, and it was called a spookeasy. That's really cute, actually. That's a great idea. I'm really into that. <laughs> Let's you could have cool That's ghostly, the bar we're going to open. Cool ghostly drinks with, like, cool glasses. Yeah, but we got to be careful because any of those drinks that are, like, white and have, like, stuff floating in them a lot of times look like cum. It's a different kind of bar. It is a different kind of bar. That's the spunk easy. <laughs> that's so <laughs> gross. God, that's nasty. Oh, nasty. Oh my God. Also, too, you'd have to definitely have a budget for a fog machine. Definitely. Because that thing would be running. All day, all night. Not you all gotta day buy the industrial like, size jug of that juice. Yeah. Definitely, like, from a certain hour to a certain hour. All the time. Because there's got to be a creep and then a definite hour of like, woo, spooky hour. And then it's got to dissipate just like the people get the fuck out. When I saw. Actually, that's a good signal. When the smog is gone, so must you be gone. Yeah, fog machines can be a lot. You can really suck the oxygen out of a room when you blast that fog machine. So we're getting a lot of people we know. That's for sure. (laughs) Oh my god. Well, let's get into it. Spookies aside. Welcome back to the Require Viewing Podcast. I'm Aaron. I'm Chloe. And this week at our spooky spectacular, we're sleeping with the lights on because we're watching ghost movies. Also, I know in the last episode, thank you for the ghost noises. I Give appreciate Give me your that. best ghost noise. Nice. Yeah, a little twirling in there. Yeah, a little jaw action. You look like a drag queen, really giving her best lip sync. Uh, voice actor. There you go. Um, so yeah, the movies last week, or at least this is the last episode we posted. Uh, we said that we were going to be talking about the devil. That's that's not correct. Sometimes we spooky change. (laughs) Spooky change. Sometimes we flip flop shit. 
uh, we're actually doing ghosts this week. And what ghost movies, since you don't know, what ghost movies are we watching? That's a good question. The first one, Vincent Price, Staple House on Haunted Hill. What's the date on that one? 1959. Beautiful. Next up is John Carpenter's The Fog, because I just can't stay away from John Carpenter. What do you mean you? We we can't stay away. That's from, from 1980, correct? Yes, 1980 is correct. Yeah. Nice job. And then wrapping things up with George C. Scott in The Changeling, also from 1980. Correct. Um, see, I don't always totally biff up the fucking dates. Some Most of, the of the dates time, are hard though. to remember. It's really random. But 1980, that was easy. That was great. <laughs> Good year, 1980. <laughs> it's also the second appearance for George C. Scott. In the show, we saw him in Dr. Strangelove during our 60s episode. That was my introduction to George yeah. Scott, so that'll be an interesting That's such chit-chat. a fascinating concept to me because most people know George C. Scott from Patton. Like, he yeah, got not... Yeah, he still is on like, our list, right? Yeah. When we, one of these days, we're going to do war movies and we're going to do Patton. It's going to happen. Patton and Gone with the Wind. <laughs> yeah. We're, yeah, we'll get to that. Um. So, yeah, but before we dive into the movies let's talk a little anthropology about the theoretical concept of ghosts the creatures themselves so a notion of the transcendent supernatural or numius usually involving entities like ghosts demons or deities is a cultural universal are they creatures or are they just entities i guess (laughs) i would consider them it I, that's it's a hard question. That's a hard question. I guess creatures, entities. They're mm, what a lot they? of our folklore surrounds the spirit right. and ghosts and the release of the spirit and what happens to us in the afterlife. But is our I guess the question is, do we become a creature when we expire from this body? I don't know. Do I don't you need know. A body to be be a creature. I guess that's the I question. Know. I don't know. These we're going to post yeah we have and more we're going to keep posing these questions in preliterate folk religions these beliefs are often summarized under ancestor worship some people believe that the ghost or spirit never leaves earth until there is no one left to remember the one who died in many cultures malignant restless ghosts are distinguished from more benign spirits involved in ancestor worship Ancestor worship typically involves rites intended to prevent revenants, vengeful spirits of the dead, imagined as starving and envious of the living. Strategies for pretending revenants may either include sacrifice, i.e. giving the dead food or drink to pacify them, or magical banishment of the deceased to force them not to return. Ritual feeding of the dead is performed in traditions all over the world, including the Chinese Ghost Festival or the Western All Souls Day. While deceased ancestors are universally regarded as venerable and often believed to have continued presence in some form of afterlife, the spirit of the deceased person that persists in the material world, a.k.a. a ghost, is regarded as unnatural or undesirable state of affairs, and the idea of a ghost or a revenant is associated with a reaction of fear. This is universally the case in pre-modern folk cultures, 
But fear of ghosts also remains an integral aspect of modern ghost stories, gothic horror, and other horror fiction dealing with the supernatural. Another widespread belief concerning ghosts is that they are composed of a misty, airy, or subtle material. Now, I actually just watched, I've been watching all sorts of ghosty stuff during this spooky season. Mm-hmm. You know, I can't remember the, the movie that I watched the most recently. I've been powering through a lot of fucking horror movies that aren't even on our list. Mm-hmm. But even in more recent horror movies, they are still using the wispy, airy ball of light to represent a ghost in someone's spirit. Like, Mm -hmm. it's still very prevalent in our pop culture society today. Mm -hmm. Anthropologists link this idea to early beliefs that ghosts were the person within the person. That's the person's spirit. Most noticeable in ancient cultures as a person's breath which upon exhaling in colder climates appears visibly as a white mist. Brain explosion. Wait. So like colder climates, when you and I see our breath and some of those like pre-literate cultures, they didn't understand that that was their breath. They thought they were releasing parts of their spirit and they could Uh, see it. Isn't that crazy? It's just cold outside. It is just cold outside. Or maybe... (laughs) That's just when you can see your spirit hanging out. It's always doing that. Possibly. Now what we see most often in movies is the proverbial haunted house. A place where ghosts are reported and described as this whole entity of haunted. And often as being inhabited by spirits of deceased who may have been former residents or were at least familiar with the property. Mm-hmm. Supernatural activities inside homes is said to be mainly associated with violent or tragic events in the building's past, such as murder, accidental death, or suicide, sometimes in recent or ancient past. However, not all hauntings are a place of violent death or even on violent grounds. In many cultures and religions, they believe that the essence of a being, such as the soul, continues to exist. Some religious views argue that the spirits of those who have died have not, quote unquote, passed over and are trapped inside the property that their memories and their energies were so strong in. Mm -hmm. And to that point, those cultures are the ones with the strongest film representations of ghosts. At least this is my opinion. Okay. Specifically in like Korea, Japan, China, all of those Asian Eastern countries, a lot of them very much still believe in ghosts to this day. Mm -hmm. And so you see a lot. They express that in their films and some of the most terrifying ghost movies I have ever seen Mm -hmm. come from Japan and Korea. They are not American. They tell they have a way to tell stories that we just can't. And there's no way to equate it in our society. Well, yeah, there's all the subtlety, too, that unless you were brought up in that culture, you might not understand, especially outright without somebody there to sort of explain it to you. And some of those things are even difficult to explain. Correct. In English. Correct. Yeah. They There are things in their culture that just do not translate. Like, Parasite was freaky AF, right? But there was... I'm sure there was all this stuff that we just missed as Westerners. Definitely. hundred um, percent. 
movies for people to check out if they want to see some really fucked up ghost movies or just some fucked up Asian horror movies. Um, Three Extremes has always been a, a one on my top list. Dumplings is on there. Dump Any woman should watch Dumplings. That's one that will really get under your skin. Um, a Tale of Two Sisters. That one's pretty weird and freaky. Uh, fuck. Audition. How could I miss Audition? That one is not a ghost movie. That's just crazy. any of these. Nah, Audition is also one that I don't know if you're ready for that I one I don't yet. know if you're ready for that one yet. Have I graduated friend. in horror, uh, co- in horror yeah, college? Yeah, I want to see how you do with The Exorcist. And then we'll go from there. Okay. Because that's tame in comparison to most of the movies I just listed. It's like cute. <laughs> like, yeah. But uh, today we are talking American cinema. First movie. You have any question about ghosts? Dead people? Yeah, but within the context of the film. Okay, cool. Uh, first movie up, House on Haunted Hill. Childhood favorite. Love this one always. Vincent fucking Price. It's a tragedy. This is his first appearance on the show. It will not be the last. Well, that's what it is. We're bringing him in at the right time. Yeah, I needed it. He's going to have a whole to give you moment. Like, we had to give you like a base layer, like a, like a good, you know, appetizer. Now we're giving you the entree. Exactly. So, House on Haunted Hill. Mr. Frederick Lauren, an eccentric millionaire, invites five people to a party he's throwing for his fourth wife. Five strangers. Five people who do not know each other, not even him, to come to his wife's birthday party. His fourth wife's birthday party, Annabelle. Poor, sweet Annabelle. She's not so sweet. She's a cunt. <laughs> They're in an allegedly haunted house that he's rented out. He promises to give each party goer $10,000 with a stipulation that they stay the entire night in the house after the doors are locked at midnight. All the windows are barred. There are no phones or radios to use. There is no escape. The guests are test pilot Lance Schroeder. Newspaper columnist Ruth Bridges, psychiatrist Dr. David Trent, who specializes in hysteria. <laughs> Nora Manning, who works for one of Lauren's companies, and the house's owner, Watson Pritchard, who is fucking drunk the whole movie. All are strangers, like we said earlier, to both the Lauren's and each other. Their only commonality is they're broke and they want money, <laughs> which respect. I don't think you should build ten thousand dollars, right? Yeah, $10, so like then ten thousand dollars then, and then at in the remake, I can't remember when the remake came out. Either nineteen ninety nine, two thousand, late nineties, early two thousands. There was a remake of this movie with Jeffrey Rush and Framke Jensen and Tay Diggs and it was just a really random cast. The offered amount of money was fifty thousand dollars in the late nineties. I would need at least hundred and fifty thousand dollars to stay in this spooky ass house. Oh yeah. With all these weird ass people. Fuck this guy. Mm-hmm. He's obviously there. I, it's it's very apparent that the party goers are there 
to be a distraction for something else, even at the right. very beginning before you really understand the relationships between any of these people. Because you can see how much the husband and wife fucking hate each exactly. other. Exactly. The Morins do have a very tense relationship. Frederick is convinced that Annabelle tried to poison him to acquire his wealth, which Annabelle somewhat evasively denies, attributing his suspicions to paranoia and jealousy. Watson believes that the house is genuinely haunted by the ghosts of the people that have been murdered there. There's quite a laundry list of people who have died on the property, including his own brother. He claims to have spent one night there before and was, quote, almost dead by morning. He's a very dramatic man. When found the next morning. Oh, sorry. Let me try that again. Quote, was almost dead when found the next morning. Bum, bum, bum. This is a very dramatic individual. He gives a tour of the house, including a vat of acid in the basement, because, you know, everyone has a vat of acid in their basement. You know, at Naturally. least. Yeah. Ne- duh. <laughs> Naturally. <laughs> Which, well, if there was a vat of acid in my last in my two basements ago, it would have solved a lot of problems. It really would have. Uh, one of the former residents of the house used the vat of acid to kill his wife. Also, duh, that adds up. Yeah. When Lance and Nora remain behind to further explore the basement, Lance is locked in an empty room and struck on the head. While a menacing ghost confronts Nora. There's a lot of theremin in this movie. Fuck. Yeah, theremin. theremin. Annabelle privately warns Lance that her husband is scheming something and she suspects him of murdering his second and third wives after the first wife mysteriously disappeared. The guests learn of the party's rules downstairs. Each is giving a Colt Model 1903 pocket hammer gun for protection in a super adorable little coffin box. I don't know. I've always loved the like aesthetic of this fucking party. Ever since I was little, I wanted to have like a box of party favors to give out to everyone in the little coffins. And you open it up. Oh, it's yeah, a little coffin. I think that's a great idea. It's so cute. <laughs> Don't but put not gun, a gun. Don't put guns in <laughs> it. Don't, yeah, put, don't put loaded in it, guns in yours. The, put things like I'll candy find other... and little pumpkin treats. Yeah, no, we'll put other cute, like, things in the coffin boxes. Non-murdery. But not guns. Non-murdery but I just, things. Really always love the coffin gift boxes. It's always something that stuck with me. <laughs> I think it's a great party idea. I think I love it. Having encountered further apparitions, Nora decides against staying the night, but the caretakers lock the doors five minutes early. They're out. They're done. They fucking locked them in so quickly. Taking that option literally out of their hands. Goodbye, bitches. Hearing a scream, Lance and David find Annabelle's corpse suspended suggesting that she hangs herself, but the absence of a perch immediately arouses suspicions of murder. Nora confronts Lance and tells him of an unseen assailant strangling her and leaving her for dead. In the light of Annabelle's warnings, they both suspect Frederick. He tells her to remain out of sight and that her attacker will still think she's dead. Lance and David propose that everyone stay in their rooms and shoot anyone who tries to enter into their room through the night. Thus, the innocents will have no reason to leave their rooms and a good reason to stay in them. And the killer must stay put or at mid guilt now everyone leaves their rooms immediately i don't know why everyone they you know what they should have done and the haunting when we watch the haunting 
everybody went in the same room. They should have done that. And that would have been like Ag Agatha Christie style. Everybody hangs out in the same room. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's how you see what's going on. Correct. You can but see everybody. But everybody in the, separately in their own rooms. That doesn't make a lot of sense. Because people did exactly what they fucking do. And everybody leaves their rooms immediately. Yeah, dude. Nora is literally chased from her room into the basement by, quote unquote, Annabelle's ghost. <laughs> I guess I sh probably shouldn't have put quotes around that. It might have been a spoiler. air quotes there. Aroused by the ghostly sounds. Anyone's aroused. <laughs> David concludes that the killer is about and proposes he and Frederick split up to search the house. Lance uncovers a secret room at the end of the second floor hall. But the door shuts behind him and once he enters, trapping him inside, David instead meets with Annabelle, who has faked her death using a hanging harness and sedatives. It's a very, it's a very obvious that she didn't kill herself. The rope does not look very tight. It's very, everyone is suspicious name? about her death. Don't be suspicious. Don't, don't be suspicious. suspicious. In this case, be suspicious. Everyone's suspicious. <laughs> So, secretly, the two, the Doc and Annabelle, are lovers, and they've orchestrated the whole various mishaps to manipulate Nora into killing Frederick. Nora, seeing Frederick enter the basement with a gun in his hand, does indeed shoot him. After she flees, David slips in to dispose of Frederick's body in the vat of acid, and then the lights go out. Annabelle walks into the basement to confirm her husband's death. A skeleton rises from the acid, accuses her in Frederick's voice, and shoves her into the vat. Frederick, it, it's not really a shove. It's more of a, she's stupid and backs herself it's into the, the vat. Longest it's the longest screaming line. Like, ah, it's, it's so ah, ah, she goes on forever. You're right. <laughs> Like, girl, will you die already? Please. <laughs> how, much is, how long is that distance? Frederick emerges from the shadows holding a puppeteer control unit that he used to manipulate the skeleton, revealing he had known their plot all along. Uh-huh. And we all saw the strings. <laughs> Even when I was a kid, I was like, I see the strings to that skeleton. I see it from here. Mm -hmm. She should see it. She's standing much She's closer right than there. I am. <laughs> After Nora, Watson, and Ruth release Lance from the secret room, he comes out of the secret room. <laughs> Nora tells him that she's shot Frederick. When they arrive in the cellar, Frederick explains, because he's obviously not dead, he's standing there. He explains that he loaded her gun with blanks, thank God. Mm -hmm. And his wife and David had plotted to kill him. And that both of them have met their ends in the vat of acid. He says that he's ready for justice to decide if he is innocent or guilty. Watson remains convinced that the house is haunted and David and Annabelle have now added to its rank ranks of ghosts and that he will be the next victim. Ooh, more spooky theremin more music. More theremin. Mm -hmm. Why should we give a shit? Because more theremin. Theremin. Not more cowbell. Vincent, more, well, yeah, cowbell, but also Vincent Price, more theremin. theremin. All sorts of things. This movie's great. So, when the wife, Annabelle, is screaming for half an hour before she makes it into the vat of acid. Yep. All I can think of is that scene in Austin Powers where he's about to get steamrolled, but there's, like, so much time and space before he gets steamrolled where he's like, yeah. no, stop. Yeah. 
up. Or in uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit at the end of that one when they're rolling over Christopher Lloyd's character and he's getting smushed. And they go really, really, really slow, and he screams for a really long time. That's the thing. The bat is like a square. It's not the whole length. Go to the side. Yeah. Move to the side. Yeah. Change up your game like basketball. Also, it's a ghostly thing of bones. You can't just push that shit. Bones can't fight back. Maybe it... Girl, we watched Jason and the Argonauts. <laughs> I guess that's true. I was thinking about that after <laughs> I said that. I was like, definitely Man, fought back. Those bones were pretty badass, though. They were badass. So, uh, what movie were we... You remember when we talked about Smell-O-Vision that one time? Yes. Sometimes gimmicks happened. This movie came with a gimmick. Not Smell-O-Vision. Not Smell-O-Vision. Different gimmick. Its own gimmick. So, this gimmick... Uh, <laughs> was called a Merjo. <laughs> and in some theaters <laughs> They just like I just add like an a to everything. A Merjo Smello Vision. <laughs> so in some theaters that showed the movie, exhibitors rigged an elaborate pulley system near the theater screen, which allowed a plastic skeleton to be flown over the audience during the corresponding scene at the end of the movie. Several modern repertory cinemas have included the film, uh, or sorry, including the Film Florum and Lowe's Jersey Theater House, have also hosted this movie and brought back the Emerjo gimmick. And I think that's fun as fuck. If you've never seen this movie and someone's like, let's go. This is a movie you take people who have never seen this movie to. And you fucking jump scare them. Just like any interactive person or uh, the interactive interactive Rocky Horror Picture Show. Like you bring people who've never been to that. And then their life has changed after that. I feel like Emerjo has the same effect. Is it Emerjo or Emerjo Vision? Emerjo. Okay. Just Emerjo. Correct. Sounds like a superhero. Yeah. This is just like a really good, solid haunted house story. Um, now, I know you have a little information. We both had like the same train of thought. So the exterior shots of this house were filmed at the historic Ennis House in Los Feliz, California, designed by Frank Lloyd Wright, built in 1924. <laughs> Correct. I like you it. have other stuff to talk about. So, yeah, the Ennis House. It's a historical landmark in Los Angeles, California, located at 2655 Glendover Avenue, Los Angeles. Not that you can get in there and just take a look around. It's a historical landmark. I can't just saunter up to the front door. I mean, there's a gate they have to go through in the movie. They came with a gate. That gate is dope. It is a dope gate. It's so cool. It's dope. Uh, It was made for Charles and Mabel Ennis. This structure is the fourth and largest of Wright's textile blocks design. It's a system created in in the 1920s, constructed primarily of interlocking precast concrete blocks. It's reinforced by steel rods created by pouring concrete mixtures into molds, thus enabling the repetition of form. So the design itself is based in Maya, Maya temples. It's referred to as the Mayan revival architecture. You were mentioning you, that you were like, I thought that was what it looked like. That, that, I thought that's what it was. That, that is correct. You are correct. The opening of that movie is just the exterior shots of this cool house before they just do a lot of screaming. Well, I mean, they've got stuff. Vincent Price's head kind of like transposed yes. over top of the house. But it is just a shot of this kick-ass house. They were like, look at this cool house. Isn't this architecture awesome? Let's talk about ghosts. <laughs> it seems... <laughs> 
<laughs> it just doesn't There's really... no like like no Mayan ghosts or no well, like it doesn't of, give me the like, outside you know, Montezuma kind yeah. of coming through or anything like the that. The outside of the haunted house does not look haunted. You know, okay, so comparing this to The Haunting, which is another one of my most favorite ghost story haunted house movies, the outside of that house was terrifying. Yeah. You see that house and you're like, fuck, we're in for a ride. You see the outside of this house and you're like, shit, I want to go in there. Of course. Let's because go. You, you were hoping that the inside, so cool. the inside is even cooler, right? Yeah, but it was disappointing because it's, it's obviously a little switcheroo. It's That's not the inside. Well, that prominent detail is the, re- is the relief ornamentation on its 27,000 perforated and patterned decomposed granite blocks inspired by symmetrical reliefs of puke architecture in the Uxmal. Say that again. Did you just it's say puke? P U U C or P U C C? I can't read my handwriting. It's not like puck. It's no, puke. I think I think puke. we spelled it out. People puke. can figure it out. Puck. Pookie pookie. No puke. Ugh. No pookie pookie. Just twenty-seven thousand perforated blocks. And they're decomposed. It was interesting to hear decomposed granite blocks. So they're eroded a little bit to make them look even cooler. From 2011 to 2019, it was owned by billionaire Ronald Burkle. He made significant repairs and then sold the house for $18 million U.S. And in 2019, to a couple, Robert Rosenbeck and Cindy Capobianco, who are cannabis industry professionals and philanthropists. So, the weed people have it. You can't, this isn't a visual medium, they can't see your furrowed brow my face i'm just thinking about all the weed plants that are in the backyard of that house right now. oh that'd be so cool (laughs) that house is a grow house now that's what's happening or just like next to the architecture and it would i don't know it's a cool where does the where does the cannabis plant hail from originally did you just ask me where weed comes from yeah afghanistan the middle east okay so dry af that's why it grows pretty well out here that makes sense similar desert climates gotcha that makes sense yeah also this movie is within the public domain it hit is it public domain is 70 years well now well now well the other uh piece of information i have for you is a theremin throwback you and i love the theremin we want more theremin wouldn't you agree always if For someone those... wants to donate a, donate a theremin to us, we'll oh, learn to play it. Gladly, gladly learn. The it's average... literally like playing air. You learn how to play. It's a magic instrument. I don't understand why they don't just give people one. Well, so typically, you play with two hands. One to make all the variations so one in sound, is, and one and for one volume. Is, one is for volume. One is for pitch. Yes, correct. But when we were at the Stanley. One of the reasons why I think this episode was delayed was because we were doing some ghost research, y'all. We were at a ghosty place. We were at a ghosty place. And we were watching Devochka play in the concert hall, which has a lot of ghosty activity. And a freaky mirror down there. But he was only using one hand. So it was, like, altered. That's really cool, yeah. Yeah. So I don't know how I did it. Good skill. The average cost of a theremin is about $399 to $899. You could build it on yourself for approximately 400 bucks. So you net out pretty much to buy a new one versus making Make building it. Unless you really like building things. That's true. That's true. So, uh, oh, I did have a question. Was it 
the was it David's skeleton or the doctor's skeleton? Was my wonder if he like pushed him into the vat of acid and he just the bones didn't float? I feel like he literally just brought a skeleton with him. He like packed it away for the weekend. Yeah, I knew. I know up. this is gonna be weird, so I'm gonna bring my skeleton with me. I well, might need it. If you think about it, you would it would have taken some time to string that thing up. Yeah, he definitely had a plan. <laughs> they all had a plan. Yeah. Well, so you husband know, and wife had. Plans. We had been. We've been comparing this movie to The Haunting. It's an apt comparison because this movie is literally a knockoff version of Shirley Jackson's The Haunting. The people who made this movie could not get the rights and the gentleman who made uh, The Haunting went to Shirley Jackson herself for the rights. So instead of going to Shirley, they just decided to make a movie that was kind of like it, but not really. So we're going to change some things. It's not going to be a house of scientists. They're going there for research and whatever. It's going to be a bunch of random people going to a party that don't know each other. Like, but really, there's the no ghosts. Ch- there's it's just a drunk guy, yeah, and a husband and wife who fucking hate each other. <laughs> that exactly. was my favorite line in the whole movie. Is well, who hasn't wanted to kill their wife every once in a while? And you're like, Jesus, dude. Um, you don't know these people. Exactly. Exactly. You don't put your failed marriage number four on on them, right? They're really bringing in a lot of people. I mean, I into guess their that's... like baggage claim area. I guess that's you what, what I mean. Baggage <laughs> claim, <laughs> They're married. I guess that's what your ten thousand dollars is for. Is it's for like them to air their dirty laundry instead of ghosts. The punitive damages from this night. Here's ten grand. I guess that is pretty haunting and terrifying. <laughs> Somebody else's marital drama. Especially if they're trying to drive you to hysteria for their own personal gain. Right. Fuck you. Right. I'm a hysteria expert. I'm just telling a bunch of women that they're hysterical. No. Honestly, so that used to not bother me when I was a kid because I didn't get it. But when then I, because this is a movie that I watch multiple times every year. You're like, I, I get it. She's hysterical. This movie. And then the older I got, the more I was like. Fuck you, dude. She's not hysterical. You're an asshole. You're not empathetic. She wants to get the fuck out of you're, a weird situation. You're being a cunt. You're gaslighting the fuck yes. out of her. Just saying she's hysterical. No. Half the dudes back then would have been like, okay, let's go fix you, little lady, and then like diddle her cooter. Because that's how I, they right. fixed hysteria. Relieved hysteria yeah, through orgasm. Masturbation. You're not allowed to do it, but we'll do it for you. We've evolved no. a little bit. Slightly. <laughs> not much. Are you ready to move on to the next movie? Shall we? Shall um, we? So, I already, Commercial Corner, I fucked up at the beginning. Um, Ooh, we're going to talk about the changeling, and then we're going to talk about the fog. Because That's what I thought. If you, you wanted didn't, to save the fog. If you didn't know this, I fucking love John Carpenter. <laughs> and he's the best. He's the greatest. He's a gem. Is he the best around? He is. He's never going to keep you down. He never keeps Adrian Brody down. Not Adrian Brody. <laughs> well, maybe not, but Adrian Barbeau. That's who I was fucking talking about. Shit. God damn it. Anyway, let's not talk about any of that. Can you imagine Adrian, Adrian Brody in a John Carpenter movie? That would be a weird combination. I don't see the two of them well, working. Because he's a very he's Wes a Anderson yeah, kind he's a of guy. Dude. Yeah. No. I don't see it. No. I don't see it. Anyway. The Changeling. 
John Russell, a composer from New York City, moves to Seattle following the deaths of his wife and daughter in a traffic accident while they're having car trouble. They should have seen it coming. They were not <laughs> being very safe. They were essentially playing in the road. I mean, yeah, that car slid off the road and hit them and shit. But if they weren't playing in the road, they would have been paying attention a little bit more. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Anyway, I'm blaming the victims. <laughs> <laughs> well, that truck also reared off suddenly. It was just like, yeah, oh, I'm bad. turning to the right yeah. or the left or whatever. He soon views and rents a mansion from an agent of the local historic society, we Claire don't Newman. don't all get an opportunity to rent a mansion so soon after a tragedy. Know, right? Anyway. Go grieve in a mansion. <laughs> I wish. Who tell, uh, Claire Norman, who's the property agent, uh, she tells him that the property has been vacant for 12 years. Not long after moving in, John begins to experience unexplained phenomena, starting with a loud banging every morning. One night, he discovers all the water taps have been turned on and sees the apparition of a drowned boy in the bathtub. Mm -mm. Soon after, a red stained glass window pane shatters as he is outside. And upon investigation, he finds a locked, boarded up door in a closet leading to a hidden attic bedroom. This house is very complicated, much like this it story. <laughs> John takes a music box from the mantle and discovers it plays the exact piano tune that he has just recorded downstairs. He had never heard this piece of music, went and recorded this piece of music organi thought organically. Was, thought he was a genius. And then, nope, you're already stealing somebody else's shit. John and Claire investigate the history of the house, believing that the ghost is that of a young girl killed outside the house in a traffic accident in 1909. John holds a seance and overhears the voice of a spirit on audio equipment calling himself Joseph Carmichael. John discovers that Joseph Carmichael was a crippled and sickly six-year-old who was murdered in 1906 by his father Richard because he was unlikely to reach the age of 21, upon which he would have inherited the enormous fortune of his late grandfather. To ensure the inheritance... Richard replaced the dead boy with one procured from a local orphanage and spirited him away to Europe under the pretense of seeking treatment for his condition. After years away, he returned with the boy when he was 18, claiming that he was cured. He was so cured, he looks totally different. <laughs> the boy is now an old man and a prominent U.S. senator who is now a major patron of the historical society that owns the house where his adopted father had committed the murder, a.k.a. the house of John's kicking it in. Mm -hmm. John's investigation leads him to a property built on the land that was once owned by the Carmichael family, where he believes that the body of the murdered boy, the real Joseph Carmichael, was dumped in a well. There he finds the skeleton of a young child with a christening medal, John attempts to speak to Senator Carmichael, but is restrained. The senator is disturbed to see the medal. It is identical to one that's in his possession, given to him by his adoptive father. The society cancels John's lease on the house and fires Claire. They get very extreme, very fast. Senator Carmichael sends a detective, DeWitt, to John's home in an attempt to intimidate him and retrieve the medal. John refuses. And when DeWitt leaves to obtain a search warrant, his vehicle mysteriously crashes, killing him instantly. It's very convenient. Oh, yeah. 
After DeWitt's death, Senator Carmichael agrees to meet with John. John tells him the story that he's come up with. Carmichael angrily berates John for accusing his adoptive father of murder. John leaves the skeleton's christening medal, along with the only copy of the seance recording, and apologizes. Claire goes to the house to find John and is chased by Joseph's wheelchair until she falls down the stairs. And when John arrives at the house, the whole thing begins to shake. He tries to appease Joseph's ghost, but falls from the second floor as Joseph's ghost sets the whole fucking house on fire. He's a really pissed off ghost boy. Simultaneously, Senator Carmichael compares the two medals and realizing the truth, he falls into a trance staring at the portrait of his adoptive father. John witnesses the senator's astral body climbing the burning stairs to Joseph's room. Claire rescues John while Carmichael witnesses the murder of the boy and suffers a fatal heart attack and also dies. John and Claire see the senator's body being loaded into the ambulance. The next morning, Joseph's burnt wheelchair sits amid the ruins of the mansion and his music box begins to play a lullaby. Fade out. Do, do, do. That's what he gets for who? Okay, just why we should give a shit. Why Sidebar. Should we give a shit? Why would you go grieve in a big ass mansion by yourself? That seems big and empty. Wouldn't it you just remind you of your the life you... is now feeling big and empty. You just lost two very important people to you. Wouldn't it Why remind would you, go... you of the family don't you understand. don't have? Yeah, I don't get it. <laughs> I don't get it. Um. So, a couple things. First of all, this was I chose this movie because this was one of those shifts. We're starting to see, because in the 50s and 60s, horror was campy, as we saw in the first movie. The yeah. movie, first movie's very fucking campy. It's funny. If you think that movie is scary, you should probably stop listening. <laughs> it's going to go down <laughs> from here. Uh, it's funny. It's campy. It's goofy. It's a good time. Horror was not taken seriously as a genre for a very, very, very long time. It hasn't really been until recent years that it's starting to win, like, Oscars and stuff. Uh-huh. So this was one of those first movies to really kind of shift that look of horror as a genre. Mm -hmm. We're leaving campy behind. This is where we have, I don't know if you would agree with me or not, but I would say that most horror that is modern, that is made now, is borderlines on either comedy or drama. Yeah, I would agree with that. There's a lot. All of the really scary ones are very dramatic. And then the ones that aren't totally trying to rely on scares are kind of funny still, but not mm. in a campy way. Like I've seen some really good. Slither is a perfect monster okay. movie and it is very funny. Just an example of that. But uh, so I told you that this movie was based on a true story. You did. I and did. And I didn't I told... realize I went into this movie naked. You did. And literally. Literally, literally <laughs> naked. So like I I spent time in Seattle and I was like, oh fuck, did this happen in Seattle? Shit. This is like getting real. And then I also decided to take a bath, which I know you mentioned if you if you had known you yeah would i would not, not have, have told that. you to watch um, the movie about a boy who gets mis- drowned in the bathtub to watch this in the made just a cautionary tale do not watch this in the tub don't do yeah, it not a suggestion unless you want it like real spooky then yes watch it in the tub 
So, are you ready for this? Maybe. Your yes. whole world is just going to fucking explode. explode. You don't even know what's that about to happen. That was more of a happen. pop than an explosion. So, the film screenplay was inspired by mysterious events at the that allegedly took place at the Henry Treat Rogers Mansion in Cheeseman Park, Denver, Colorado. So, here, not here. in Seattle. Here, Still a place I've been and lived. But it was just like... When you do any, if you come to Denver or anything, everybody knows Cheeseman Park is fucking infamous for being haunted. But you and I used to go walk there literally we every night. Every I've night. I've never had anything weird or spooky happen like to me. It was like 10 to 15 Cheeseman. degrees cooler than the rest of the city, especially at the apartment we lived at. And also the spookiest thing that happened were homeless the, people. Rust- it was the rustling of the bushes with homeless people yeah. and gay guys trying to get it on. Yeah. There was nothing going, no, no ghosty shit going on. So the that's like the history of trolling Cheeseman Park. Park. Well, not trolling. What do you call that? Uh, cruising, cruising. Thank you. Yeah, a it used to be a cruise in the seventies. Cheeseman Park was a cruising park. It's still a cruising park. Not as much anymore. Eh. There's too many families around there. But not at night when we were going. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. But uh, so back way, 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 way back in the day, mm-hmm. it was a cemetery. And then it was purchased by the city and turned into a landfill. And then it was purchased by somebody <laughs> okay. else and turned into a park where it is. Now, much like in Poltergeist, they moved the stones and not the bodies. And they're still what not too long ago, last in the spring when we went, ju- we had just been to the Botanic Gardens mm-hmm. days before that are in Cheeseman Park. And they had found bones in the botanic gardens because there is still bodies littered all over that property. Of course. So it is technically still like a haunted place in Colorado and in Denver, but I personally have never had any experiences. The playwright Russell Hunter was living at the Treat Rogers Mansion at the time in the 60s after experiencing a series of unexplained phenomena. Hunter said that he found a century-old journal in a hidden room detailing the life of a disabled boy who was kept in isolation by his parents, which is fucking tragic. Yeah, there was no mother in this story. Nope, there is none. During a seance, he claimed the spirit of the deceased boy directed him to another house where he discovered human remains and a gold medallion bearing the dead boy's name. Henry Treat Rogers, a wealthy wealthy Denver attorney, was childless. But prior inhabitants of the house remain undocumented, which I've always thought was strange. Mm. The mansion no longer exists there. It got demolished in the 80s and was replaced with a high-rise apartment building. It's the big, the property where the Henry Treat Rogers Mansion is used to be is where that really big white square apartment building is. Yeah, okay. In Cheeseman. Okay. That's what used to be there. So we used to walk through that property all of the time. So yeah, I just think that's really fascinating. To escape that Denver heat. I did not when I, the first time I saw this movie, I did not know that it was based on the Henry Treat Rogers Mansion, and then I just I found that, that out. That the murder in the was post. a little closer to home than you. I know it's so fucking crazy. That's so weird. Yeah. Um, how did you like this movie though? Did you I liked it a lot. I did. I really liked it. This is it. like a, a, no pun intended, but it's a sleeper, <laughs> like. I just feel like not a lot of people have seen this movie. I know. Sorry. Not a lot of people have seen this movie. And when they do see it, they're like, damn, that's a good movie. Why have I not seen this movie? It's a good one. I've got a definition corner. <laughs> I'll give it to me. If you, for Changeling, 
It's uh, there's a lot of definitions here. Oh yeah, we didn't even talk about the meaning of the, the changeling. meaning of the word changeling. So it was first recorded in 1545 to 1555 in and in British English or let's see, it's the first one is a child surreptitiously or unintentionally substituted for another. So it's it's fairy folklore from I was gonna say I have another the Celts. One here. Yeah. yeah, in folklore. An ugly, stupid, or strange child left by fairies in place of a pretty, charming child. No. Yes and no. So in that was one traditional Irish, Scottish, Celtic folklore, um, in the times where the veil is thin, right. specifically Samhain, that allows fairies to come back and forth a little bit easier. Mm-hmm. And they really like human children so especially if they're pretty and good yes than everybody's where did they get this idea that they disney, were these sweet disney things? disney fairies are evil and mean creatures if you go back and look at traditional folklore from the united kingdom and even in like fairies are there are certain they don't call them fairies but they are fairy-like creatures in different cultures throughout the entire world none of them are nice the we think mischievous and cute like tinkerbell tinkerbell a was a cunt she was mean as fuck she was bitchy dude she was not nice and b they are way more mischievous we think mischievous in a cute way they are malicious no good like they're ugly they're mean they're malicious. It's well, not the fucking same. Just like leprechauns. Leprechauns should, are also not nice. Okay, we should definitely do an episode on like leprechauns and like fairies and like the falsehood of these creatures that are seemingly nice but really fucking not nice. Yeah, yeah. So fairies will steal your sweet, awesome, nice baby. Your and true in, child. Your true, Brit- in your British child. Lore. And in its place, put a child that is going to ruin your life. Uh, more than children already do. See, that's much worse than a dud. It sounds like they just put a dud in no, your in your No, bassinet. this child is going to scream all the time. It's going to throw tantrums. It's going to hit you and bite you and kick you. Mm. All of the worst things like you see. Like a little see. Damien yes, baby? Yes, yes. It is not, it's not pleasant. Changelings are not good. So the whole. There's another fun term, definition for it. Yeah, you got a third one? I've got. Four, two and more. Oh my God. So it's a philately or philately? I don't know. Philately, a posted stamp that by accident or intention has been chemically changed in color. Okay. Also a changeling. An archaic, uh, a renegade or turncoat or an imbecile. Okay. I only know of it in the context of like, I mean, changeling babies. Yeah, that's uh Okay, I have a burning question. A burning question? So when you burn the property, does that get rid of the ghosts or the spirits? Uh again, that's a very depending on the situation. So, um I mean, if you're talking to someone like me who's kind of witchy and spiritual, like burning and salting ground is a way to purify it and cleanse it. Okay. But not all societies and cultures believe that. Because sometimes the grounds themselves are haunted, not necessarily the house. Yeah. Like and in you, the burial ground kind and, of jazz. And That's you and in I, the soil. Yeah. That's not going away. And you and I talked about like haunted houses. Yeah. So the houses themselves. Oh, we uh, were talking about intelligent versus residual hauntings. Mm. 
So like a residual haunting, I feel like would be more difficult to get rid of because a residual haunting is literally leftover energy. Mm -hmm. Grandma Jane's house is haunted by Grandma Jane and she still gets up. You see her every morning at 5 a.m. making coffee, even though she's been dead for 20 years. Mm -hmm. Like that is a residual haunting. That energy has just been there doing that same thing. Or like in Ghostbusters. You said in Ghostbusters. The librarian. librarian, Yeah. Mm -hmm. She was there. That was a residual. I think it was a residual haunting, even though she got really pissed off at them. Well, people always say, too, it's not not people. And I've heard that it's it's where you spent the most time. Correct. Or where you had the happiest time. That's what I was talking about at the beginning when I had that little section about what ghosts are. It's not necessarily it doesn't have to be a violence it can be just a place where you wanted your spirit to reside forever because that was a good place for you a good moment for you what they said about the stanley was that it doesn't have a bunch of violent things such as portrayed in the shining the shining and then his uh the shining the tv series as well uh it was a lot of people that lived there for a summer or like not just People that just enjoy the property. They stayed for weeks on end and they enjoyed the property. And so maybe that was some of the happiest times that they I mean, I've been up to the Stanley Stanley numerous times. I've never had anything weird happen to me. I fucking love going up there. It's a beautiful place to be. Mm -hmm. It's a fun afternoon. If you don't want to spend a bunch of money and you don't have a lot of time in Colorado and you're staying in Denver and you just want to drive somewhere cool, Stanley Hotel is great. You can just go walk around. Bring a picnic. Yeah, no, you can just go hang out on the grounds. It's awesome. It's a very magical place. I love the Stanley Hotel. Shout out to the Stanley Hotel and literally all the cool tour guides that we met in the last few weeks during spooky season who showed us around the place. It was a really good time. Yeah, when we were last there, I basically just gave a similar tour to the one that we had gotten when we yeah. went on the Haunted Ghost mm-hmm. Fair. So we saw the Pet Cemetery. We mm-hmm. saw the Ice House. Mm-hmm. That Pet Cemetery was really cool. It was really cute. The funniest thing being, they were like, oh, this one pet is so mischievous and trips people is the most active. And you're like, yeah, because it has the tiniest grave site. Yeah. It's the only cat in the graveyard. The most loved and, and the tiniest has grave site. The tiny grave site. Maybe that cat would be left mischievous if you gave it a better burial. So that dog, the dog that was known as Beavis. Beavis. Did he have a gravesite there too no okay that's what i was was wondering i didn't see it he was buried in estes park he has a she so it uh, she meant i don't know if you remember or not but she did say in that tour that beavis is does have a memorial and is buried in town somewhere okay because that dog is city famous anyway beavis with no a i know right i just thought that was such a funny name for a dog anyway so john carpenter's the fog Le Fog, right before midnight, on the eve of the 100th anniversary of the coastal town of Antonio Bay in Northern California, Mr. Minchin tells a ghost story to children by a campfire on the beach. One of the stories is about a local ship that had crashed against the rocks, causing all of its crew to drown. Paranormal activity then begins around the town starting at midnight. Literally, the town falls apart. It results in the town priest, Father Malone, discovering his grandfather's diary at the church after a piece of masonry falls from the wall. And a really sexy appearance by uh, 
snatched young John Carpenter. Oh, yeah. In that scene. Mm. Boy, give me some mustache rides. You Shit. can clean my church anytime. Oh, amen. Ooh. The journal reveals that in 1880, the six founders of Antonio Bay, including Malone's grandfather, deliberately sank a clipper ship by the name of Elizabeth Dane. So that its wealthy, leprosy-afflicted owner, Blake, would not establish a leper colony on a nearby island. The conspirators used some of the gold plundered from the ship to start the town. Meanwhile, three fishermen are out at sea when a strange glowing fog envelops their trawler. The fog brings in with it the Elizabeth Dane, carrying the vengeful revenants of Blake and his crew, who kill the fishermen. Meanwhile, the town resident Nick Castle is driving around in his truck and picks up a young hitchhiker named Elizabeth Solly, played by our kick-ass, one of the many kick-ass heroines in this movie, movie Jamie Lee Curtis. Mm-hmm. As they drive towards the town, all the truck's windows inexplicably shatter. The following morning, local radio DJ Stevie Wayne is given a piece of driftwood by her son Andy. Inscribed on it, are the words Dane. And Andy said he found it on the beach. Intrigued, Stevie takes it with her to the lighthouse in her very epic journey to get to work. She's got to go like Seriously. to Mordor just to get to fucking That's work. That's its own movie, is getting to, <laughs> getting the, light, to, getting to the lighthouse. <laughs> <laughs> so she's broadcast her radio show at this lighthouse way, 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 way on Spivey Point. <laughs> I was waiting for it. I know. I was I was trying to find a good place to stick it in there. She sets the wood down next to a tape player that's playing all these really annoying like <laughs> demo things. <laughs> and then the wood also inexplicably begins to seep water, causing the tape player to short circuit. A mysterious man's voice emerges from the tape player, swearing revenge, and the words six must die appear on the wood before it bursts into flame. Stevie quickly extinguishes the fire. But then she sees that the wood once again reads Dane. And the tape player begins to play normally again. After locating the missing trawler, Nick and Elizabeth find the corpse of the fisherman, Dick Baxter, with his eyes gouged out. The other two are missing, one of whom is the husband of Kathy Williams, played by Janet Lee. Jamie Lee, or not Jamie? Janet Lee. Lee. Janet Lee. Yeah. Jamie Lee's mother. Jamie Lee's mother. Yeah. Janet Lee. Janet Lee. Still aging beautifully. At this point, yeah, she's been dead for a while. Not in that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> not in, in this, this movie. movie. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so Kathy <laughs> Williams is overseeing the town centennial celebrations while Elizabeth is alone in the autopsy room with Baxter's corpse. He rises from the autopsy table and approaches her before collapsing. As Elizabeth screams, Nick and the coroner, Dr. Phoebus, that's right, that's his <laughs> name, rush into the room where they see the once again lifeless corpse and he's carved the number three on the floor. This scene when I was a kid scared the fucking shit out of me. Oh that God, dude yeah. with no eyes getting up up from that fucking table. God, I used to, oh. And yeah. writing something and you're like, but how can he? <laughs> yeah. That evening, as the town celebrations begin, local weatherman Dan calls Stevie at the radio station to tell her that there's another fog bank and it's appeared and it's moving towards town. 
As they're talking, the fog gathers outside the weather station, and Dan hears a knock at the door. He answers it like a dumbass and is killed <laughs> by the remnants as Stevie listens in horror on the phone. As Stevie proceeds with her radio show, the fog starts moving inland, disrupting the town's phone and power lines. Using the backup generator, Stevie begs her listeners to go to her house and save her son when she sees the fog closing in from her life ha- lighthouse vantage point. As the fog envelops Stevie's house, the revenants kill her babysitter, Mrs. Kubritz. Again, another idiot who goes directly to the windows. If weird shit is happening outside, you go closer. Bitch, you were asking for it. You notice there are no black people in this movie. Yep. (laughs) They then pursued Andy, but Nick and Elizabeth arrive just in time to rescue him. Stevie advises everyone to head to the town's church through her broadcast. Once inside, Nick, Elizabeth, Andy, Kathy, and her assistant Sandy, as well as Father Malone, take refuge in the back room as the fog arrives outside. Inside the room, I like this scene as they're racing to the church Mm -hmm. and Stevie is counting down. It's on this street. It's on this street. You better get moving, motherfuckers. It's coming. You better go. (laughs) It's just like... But, like, in the context of the movie, that's, like, a really good moment of suspense to, like, Mm -hmm. oh, my God, we've got to get into the church. So, they're in the back. The the fog has arrived outside, inside the room. They locate a gold cross in the wall cavity, which is made from the rest of the stolen gold. As the revenants begin to attack, Malone takes the gold cross out into the chapel, knowing that they have returned to take six lives in lieu of the six original conspirators who led them to their deaths. Malone offers the gold and himself to Blake to spare the others. At the lighthouse, more revenants attack Stevie, trapping her on the roof. Inside the church, Blake seizes the gold cross, which begins to glow and kind of zap the father (laughs) he's just kind of stunned there nick pulls malone away from the cross seconds before it disappears in a blinding flash of light along with blake and his crew the revenants at the lighthouse also disappear and the fog vanishes stevie gets down from the roof and makes it back to safety after having like her fight scene on that roof is pretty fucking gnarly she get a hook she takes that hook out of her shoulder and hits that dude in the fucking face with it yeah she's she's a badass tits akimbo after elizabeth andy kathy and sandy leave the church malone contemplates why he was spared by blake and asks why not six given that there have only been five deaths. However, moments later, the fog reappears inside the church. The fog. (laughs) Along with the revenants, and Blake decapitates Malone, and the screen cuts to black. This is music. Again, John Carpenter. Why should we give a shit? Obviously. John John Carpenter. Carpenter. (laughs) That's why, duh. And And a list. (laughs) Also, young, hot John Carpenter. Yeah, sexy, Visually fine, vi- fine. visible in this movie. Ass John Carpenter. His ass is pretty fine in this Tight movie. jeans. Those fucking bell bottoms. Shit. Woo. My goodness, John Carpenter. Still rocking long hair to this day. Man likes some long hair. I respect it. 
Uh, I literally, besides being a massive fan of John Carpenter and loving this movie since I was a child, I thought this was a really good representation of not just a haunted house. We get the haunted house story all the fucking time. Oh, yeah. This is a haunted place. This is a haunted town. Right. It is a little bit of an exception. So I just think that this is a very interesting take on spooky, scary stuff. So having a whole town being haunted, there's no safe place to go. When your house is haunted, you just fucking leave. But if the whole town is haunted, where do you go? You know, it's also like, I don't know, like a bay town. So there's not really a lot of places you can go. Yeah, the ocean's on one side. (laughs) There's only one way to go. So, yeah. The Fog. What did you think about that one? That was your first watch I of that really one too, right? I really liked The Fog. I really liked it. I did. It's a great one. I really liked that one. Jamie Lee Curtis, Tom Adkins, uh, Janet Lee, John Carpenter himself. Me-man. The cast The cast in this movie is pretty exceptional. Phenomenal. So something I wanted to ask about was she talks about the witching hour. Oh, yeah. So Uh, she says it's from like midnight to 1 a.m., right? Incorrect. Which is incorrect. Incorrect. So the- Can you talk about that? True witching When it is, what it is. So I'm not Catholic, so I don't know the exact, like, why this is. I just know that the witching hour is between 3 and 4 a.m. And the holy hour is between 3 and 4 p.m. So the antithesis of the holy hour. Okay. Um, most spooky, scary movies take, for example, because I just watched both of the versions, the Amityville horror. Everything happens at like 317. A lot of ghost stories, you'll see things happening at 315, 317, 307. It's always like prime odd numbers <clears throat> at 309. Three. Yeah. Yeah. Three, three something in the three o'clock hour. It's the reverse Holy Trinity, essentially. The three, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. The the opposite. Yeah. Okay. So the, your witching hour would be three to four a.m., not one, not midnight to one. That's Hollywood. That's Hollywood, baby. Yep. That's the biz. <laughs> uh, James Canning, Dick Baxter, is from MASH. From 1976 to yes. 1979, he was yes. Captain Simmons. Yes. Also, for those listeners who are not familiar, we use the term akimbo quite a bit here at Required Viewing. We do. So I have another definition corner for you. Akimbo, an adverb, means with hands on the hips and elbows turned outward. She stood with the arms akimbo, frowning at whatever, whatever. Late. It's late Middle English, probably Old English. Uh of, uh, also of other limbs, flung out widely or haphazardly. I don't know if you could refer to breasts as limbs, but in some cases, some people use them in parts oh, of the world as sure. limbs. Uh, he collapsed on the bed, legs akimbo. So I feel like you could use it, for example, as we do, tits akimbo, because her tits are most definitely akimbo. Always. And at attention. Yes. Uh, and we thank Adrian Barbo for it. Yes. So yeah, that's all I got for this week. Um, no, but I've got you got two questions for you. Oh, I love to answer questions. First of all, yes. who is running the radio station when Stevie Wayne is not there? So this is a burning question I have had for decades. 
Does she just have a tape player that ru- something has got to run? Maybe because it songs? literally says that there is like stuff on the hour every hour in those like promo tapes that she's listening to at the lighthouse in that scene where the the driftwood explodes. Like someone's got to be up there. She's got to have employees. It can't just be her, right? That's not feasible. She can't no. be up there twenty four seven, and she has a child. Yeah. What the fuck? I don't get it. She's and it takes be a fucking forever in a day to get up there. Yeah. Jesus. And I to leave. Understand. It's like a whole thing. My last burning question for you. What do you think the worst way to go is? I.e. We're talking about an icy death. At Spivey Point. Spivey Point. Uh, because we live in Colorado and this is something that happens on a really fl- frequent basis. Um, getting lost in the woods. And starving to death, and becoming you did mount- get lost into the woods, mountain mountain lion food, <laughs> or bear food, or mountain kitty chow. Yeah, like they don't care. They're very bears. Don't give a fuck, dude. Monsters are real, and they are bears. Yeah, they are bears and kitties. The, the big kitties and the big mountains. ass cats. Well, I they're always not nice. Well, I always think about when you see cats like playing with a little ball, and they're like beep 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 beep. Now scale that up a few, and that's terrifying. Yeah, that could yeah. be your skull. Yeah, definitely um, getting lost out in the way or having like my car roll off a mountain road and now yeah. I'm stuck and broken in a car and then I started death. Down. Yeah, yeah, that would also suck Fuck pretty that. exceptionally. I was wondering the same thing and I, I like looked it up to see if there was like a list of worst ways to die and there was one that stuck out. In particular. I used to watch that show. After yeah, a thousand ways a thousand to die. A thousand ways to die. Yeah. Also, after a bunch of suicide hotline phone numbers, I got to some. <laughs> I got to a good one. They want to make and sure Google article, wants to make sure you're okay. And an article that was asking about like, what was it? It was um, an article asking why people are so obsessed with painful deaths, which was. I, it wasn't really an article. It was calling it an article was like was a favor, uh, but somebody listed a Persian method of scafism, or the boats, because you're unfortunately bowing out. Uh, the first, your body is stripped naked, put between two hollowed out logs with your head and limbs sticking out. They pour honey and force ingestion of that honey, which attracts insects. Then they leave you in a stagnant pond to be slowly eaten. But they come back every day with milk and honey so that you don't die immediately. And then you end up succumbing to exposure, dehydration, shock, and then eventually delirium. What the fuck? Yeah. Holy shit. The boats. Le fog. Wow. Okay. What a note to end on. All right. You're welcome. Um, <laughs> I'm going to give my... <laughs> Jesus. Okay. Well, here are my suggestions for the week. <laughs> Not that. <laughs> uh, if you want to watch some more recent spooky, scary, ghosty movies, Pretty Things That Live in the House is a good one. Just re-water- re-watched The Blair Witch Project. Exceptional. It's been a while. That movie is still fantastic. And Lake Mungo, another sleeper movie that was a Showtime made for... There was like these, um, there was this kind of series they were doing for a while and they were mm-hmm. getting horror directors and like up and coming directors to produce movies for like eight films to die for was what it was called. And okay. so this was one of the eight films to die for okay. was Lake Mungo. Also pretty fucking exceptional. Okay. Um, next week, 
What do we got for vampires, my dude? <laughs> my vampire dude? Well, we decided to kick it off old school with the OG Nosferatu. Nosferatu. 1922. The OG, the OG. It'll be good Bring to get back some info some, uh, Stretching those reading eyeballs. Yes, because there is. It's, it's because we're going back sense. to 1922. It's silent. There's a lot of music and a lot of reading. A lot of reading. You can do it, though. But you can do it. I believe in you. We believe in you. Uh, a cult favorite, The Lost Boys from 1987. Hell yeah. And mm, Kiefer Sutherland. <laughs> oh. Kiefer. Kiefer. Uh, and then it, we are ending with Interview with a Vampire, The Vampire Chronicles from 1994. I'm so excited to talk about that one. Oh, <laughs> so many so things to say. So excited. Okay. Well, thank you, friends, for joining us on our continued spooky spectacular. Until next week, happy viewing. Happy viewing. Hello. This is required viewing. This podcast was a Yaki Soba Studios production. With a special thanks to our producer, Michael Murray. With graphics and music done by Colin Pearson.